Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Christmas week, which means we have a holiday clips show for you. This week, we'll re-listen to my conversation with Deborah Bricker-Balkin from back in March. Balkin is the author of Arthur Dove, a catalog resume of paintings and things, a thorough presentation that includes Dove's assemblages. Jesse Centivan contributed to the book. It contains 537 illustrations, almost all of them in color, of each work of Dove's that Balkan was able to identify, find, photograph, and document. Dove includes an essay on Dove's work and its critical reception, as well as many essays on major works. Many of the materials and images in the book are being published for the first time here. It lists for $125 via IndieBound or Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Dove is among the most prominent American modernists of the early 20th century, a key link between the American nature tradition and abstraction. Oh, by the way, Balkan has a new book out, Harold Rosenberg, A Critic's Life. Deborah Bricker Balkan, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, announces its 2022 low-end performance schedule. Low End is Bemis Center's music venue and an integral part of its sound art and experimental music program. These performances aim to not only build new audiences and a greater appreciation for non-traditional forms of music, but also liberate artists to take risks and to present truly avant-garde work. Kicking off the year on January 6th at 8 p.m., Jamie Branch, a Colombian-American musician and artist, expands the technical limitations of the trumpet and the musical language of free jazz and improvised music. Bemis Spring 2022 Sound Art and Experimental Music Artist-in-Residence Molly Joyce will perform on February 10th at 8 p.m. Joyce's work is concerned with disability as a creative source. The Fairfield, Connecticut-based artist has an impaired left hand, and the primary vehicle in her pursuit is her electric vintage toy organ that engages her disability on a compositional and performative level. Then next on the schedule is Tal Sounds on February 19th at 8 p.m. Natalie Shammy, a Canadian-born Lebanese-American, adopted the Tal Sounds moniker for her explorations in the drone, ambient, and improvisational disciplines. The rest of the lineup includes Elder Ones, an Indian Carnatic and Western classical-influenced quartet, Crank Sturgeon Bringing Noise and Lowercase Art Interruption, plus cello and percussion, natural phenomena that respond to unheard sounds, cross-genre electronic music, and more. In-person RSVP is required at bemiscenter.org slash low-end. Low-end performances also stream live on Facebook and Twitch. RSVP to experience radically unconventional performances by sound artists and experimental musicians from around the world. Free admission thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Additional shows are to be announced. Details, including Bemis Center's COVID safety policy, can be found at bemiscenter.org slash low-end. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. 
The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction. From the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition in relation to power, politically engaged works from the collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study in provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Deborah Bricker-Balkan, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is your third major Dove project. You curated the 97-98 retrospective, as well as a show on Dove and O'Keefe in 2009. Did this project teach you anything about Dove you hadn't previously learned? Yes. I mean, I'm always learning about Arthur Dove through various projects, but In the retrospective, I worked primarily on Dove's early work, that is his work from about 1910-11 until the early 1930s. And that was actually the period I also explored for the Dove O'Keeffe show at the Clark Art Institute that paired Dove's painting with O'Keeffe's through the same time period. So this was the first time that I actually examined all three major phases or periods associated with Dove's work. His his early work, his so-called Geneva period, which stretches from 1933 to 38, and then his late period when he is back in Long Island and where he will work the last six years of his life. Yeah, by Geneva, you mean Geneva, New York, of course. So let's dive into the Dove oeuvre a bit. And let's start, I guess, kind of in a way before the catalog resume starts. Dove starts out as an illustrator for magazines such as McClure's and Scribner's and whatnot. What do you see migrating or transitioning from that experience as an illustrator, such a common experience for American painters of the 20th century and 19th century for that matter, into his painting? Very little, actually. Dove worked primarily as an illustrator for about the first three or four years of his life. It was a fairly lucrative profession for 
a young graduate from Cornell University who made his way to New York, became immediately involved in the illustration community. Some of his closest contacts included William Glackens and John Sloan. But Dove was always tempted to make the leap into into painting. In fact, that was something that John Sloan encouraged. And that induced a trip that he took to France in from 1908 to 1909. And while there, Dove produced, you know, a rather unremarkable body of post-impressionist work. He comes back to New York with an introduction to Alfred Stieglitz, and he, for the most part, gives up working as an illustrator full-time. He'll take on part-time assignments, but there's very, very little crossover between his, his illustrations and his, and his painting. And in fact, he saw them actually as two distinct bodies of work. You mentioned that trip to France. One of the big discoveries for him there is Matisse and Fauvism. How did Matisse help him, if that's the right phrase, in that transition into into painting and painting, you know, full time, as it were? Well, I would say, you know, Matisse's, you know, preoccupation with color and light was something that deeply held of who saw his work at some of the various salons in Paris, like the Salon d'Automne, which, you know, Dove will also participate in. So we do know that he, you know, he probably actively studied Matisse's work there. When he comes back to New York, you know, some of the kinds of residual influences that you can see from Matisse and other Fauve artists is a black line or a black boundary that will appear in some of his earlier abstractions. But that's about it. I guess one thing I noticed that he may have taken from Matisse was the compression of space, how Matisse uses textiles, wallpaper, whatnot, and kind of visual rhymes with stuff in the foreground to to consolidate the front and the rear of a painting together. Well, you can certainly see that in some of his early still life paintings, like The Lobster, which was exhibited in Paris at the Salon d'Automne. But again, those kinds of influences, if indeed they were direct influences, very quickly recede from Dove's work by 1912 or so. Yes, we can see occasional evidence in pastels like a walk poplar. There's a you know, distinct black line or boundary line. But as Dove moves into you know, what we would refer to at this point in time as pure abstract painting, all of those kinds of fascinations will drop by the wayside. So as we get into these next four or five years of Dove's early career, you know, from the end of the 19 aughts into the 19 teens, the dates of Dove's paintings are are often uncertain. And you note in the CR that that he really rarely dates his paintings, both both now and ever. You know, at the risk of maybe asking an unanswerable question, you know, why why didn't he? <laughs> you know, he didn't begin keeping records of his work until he and Tor take up their collaborative diaries. His wife, his second wife, Helen Tor. His second wife, Helen Tor, yes, in 1924. And the diaries actually become a way for us to, to date work. But also, he will begin having an annual show at Alfred Stieglitz's third gallery, an American place, as of the late 1920s. And we have checklists from those various exhibitions, which allow us to date them, the paintings pretty accurately. So in 19... 19- 
10, 11-ish, he makes a series of quite abstract paintings, and they they run across a pretty striking, almost shocking two-page spread in the book. How did he get from from a painting like The Lobster, which is representational as representational can be, to something so completely different, so completely abstract, so quickly? I think primarily through his discussions with Alfred Stieglitz, whom he becomes quite close to as soon as they meet when he returns to New York in 1909. And then, you know, he, the, the lobster will be included in a group exhibition. And then thereafter, Stieglitz will assemble a one-person exhibition of Dove's work in 1912. These small abstractions were not included in that exhibition, but we do know that Stieglitz saw them because he makes much of Dove's role as the first abstract painter in the United States. But no, it, it comes out of a, of a discussion with Stieglitz about the nature of modernism. What were the ingredients of modernism? How is American modernism distinguished from French modernism? And I think that, you know, these were issues that Diglitz was also thinking about very deeply at this moment in time. You know, we know that he passed on or, or recounted to Dove books that he was reading, like Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual and Art. Of course, Kandinsky was making similar kinds of pictorial breakthroughs in his work simultaneous to Dove. We are definitely going to get to Kandinsky in a moment. One of the things that really jumped out to me with clarity I'd never had before about Dove was the Kandinsky relationship. This book, I, you just as you as you page through it and read through it, it, it bursts forth. But before we get to Kandinsky, it's in like 1910 or 11-ish that America becomes an important subject for Dove. Is Is that Stieglitz too, or are there other reasons? I think it's absolutely Stieglitz. You know, Stieglitz is beginning to think the mission of his 291 gallery, that is the photo succession gallery, that's named for its address at 291 Fifth Avenue. He is thinking again very, very deeply about the nature of American art, how it again is differentiated from what is happening in Europe. And eventually he will give up on exhibiting photography with the exception of Paul Strand and will focus almost exclusively on American artists. And that will become his mission, actually, when he will resurface as a dealer in the mid-1920s. In 1911, Dove makes three paintings titled Nature Symbolized, numbers one, two, and three. At least one of them is a representation of factories as being nature, air quotes nature, which is interesting for a lot of reasons, reasons having to do both with the past and the 19th century and reasons having to do with precisionism, which these paintings are a decade ahead of. What do we know about Dove's association of these paintings with with nature, the word nature, the place nature, how he thought through nature? Well, when Dove comes back from Paris in 1909, he spends a two-week period in Geneva, New York, where he grows up as a child, camping in the environs of, of Geneva. And he, he's there largely to think about what he gleaned from his experience in France. And most of the work that he did produce in France was landscape-based, with the exception of a handful of, of still-life paintings. So when he's in Geneva, he's thinking very, very deeply about the role of nature vis-a-vis -vis landscape painting. And 
I think from that experience alone, you know, nature will become the primary and ongoing subject matter of his work. The way he presents factories in Nature Symbolized Number 1, which is a painting in a private collection in Florida, just completely fascinating to me. It's 1911. We will see precisionists like Sheeler in the 1930s and Sheeler and Strand in Manhattan, their, their 1921 film address both the idea of factories as nature and factories as supplanting Emersonian landscape as the core of the American thing, the core of the American cultural thing. But but here is Dove blending the industrial and Emersonian nature, you know, way before that, 10, 20 years before that. And he moves through it pretty quickly. He doesn't stick around factories for long. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's it's fascinating to me that artists will come back to it. But why does he pick it up and then leave it be? Well, he will resume looking at the industrial landscape in the late 1920s. And there are a number of images that he did of gas tanks, silver tanks and moon being probably one of the foremost pieces. And then throughout the decade of the 20s, you know, as many artists are thinking about the whole new phenomenon of regionalist painting, I mean, Dove will paint silos and other industrial components, but they're always integrated and immersed within nature. They're always tied to a natural element like the moon or the sun. You know, while while you mentioned Silver Tanks and Moon, which is from 1930 and which is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, it is one of a number of paintings to which you devoted an entire page. How did you pick the paintings that you chose to extra spotlight and write a few extra paragraphs on? Well, first of all, you know, when I was thinking about the whole format of the catalog resume, which is a chronological format that is fixed, that you have to abide by, I thought, how can I enliven, you know, this rigid format? And one way was to isolate 25 or so paintings that I think of as Dove's monuments and to devote short essays to each of them. So... Starting in about 1914-ish, Dove makes a series of abstractions, you know, air quotes, abstractions. And in your lead essay, the essay that kicks off the, the cat res, you write, quote, their dating remains approximate in the absence of archival documentation while begging the question, dum-dum-dum-dum, had Dove landed in abstract territory before artists such as Kandinsky? How did you come to that question? And how did you maybe come to consider its answer? Well, you know, a lot of scholars before me have linked Dove to Kandinsky, have noted that, you know, Dove and Kandinsky were working, you know, neck and neck as they inched towards outright or pure abstraction in their work. You know, for me, it's an interesting question, but it's a question that I've never been able to solve, you know, in the absence of archival evidence. You know, it's something also a lot of, that a lot of American art historians have made a light of, but certainly European art historians are not thinking about um, connections between Dove and Kandinsky, which I also find to be fascinating. You know, in large part because figures like like Dove and other painters associated with Alfred Stieglitz, be they O'Keefe, be they Marin, Hartley, or others, you know, are figures who, until the mid-century, were for the most part overshadowed by European developments. It probably accounts for the reason why there has never been a one-person exhibition of Arthur Dove's work abroad. 
there have been a number of O'Keefe shows, and there has been there have been two Hartley shows, but there has never been a focused take on Dove's work alone abroad. Let's let's stick with nature for a moment because nature is important to Dove, you know, in 1909 and 1910, and it stays important all all the way through. Are there subjects within nature that interest him most? Well, he's primarily drawn to the ephemeral components of nature, that is to, you know, the diurnal rhythms of the sun and the moon, to the play of wind on a field of grass, to rain, to snowstorms. Those transient subjects stick with him. One of the ways he explores nature is in a series of works that may or may not have any paint in or on them whatsoever. Paintings that include things like collaged paper and fabric and all kinds of stuff. Where where do those works come from? Well, there are a number of different stories that um, account for the assemblages or the collages or the things, as, as he referred to, these 24 pieces that he produces between 1924 and 1929. O'Keefe believes it was economic, that he didn't have the, the means to purchase, you know, paint and canvas so that he would, you know, pick up bits of bark or tree limbs and fashion them into a collage or thing like Rain of 1924, which is one of the first collages that he produces, or he would pick up things at the dime store, which also becomes a subject of another assemblage called Tencent Store. And there might be something to that explanation because there are you know, there are not as many paintings produced at least at the outset in 1924. And during this period of time, even though Dove is working as a part-time illustrator, that market is drying up. And by 1929, you know, a major year, in many reasons, you know, the onset of the Depression, photography comes to supplant illustration in mass media publications. And Dove doesn't have a part-time job anymore. Let's talk about Tencent Store for a moment. I One of the most striking of these works that aren't necessarily or only or mostly are not paintings. Well, first, what is it made out of, if you will? Let's start there. <laughs> uh, well, it is made out of this bouquet of flowers, artificial flowers that he would have acquired at the Tencent Store and combined with natural elements such as a fern that he would have picked up somewhere on his daily walks near Huntington, Long Island, which is where he was based at this point in time. So Tencent Store is, for me, a really sly, winking, smirking nod at botany and particularly at 19th century America's fascination with with botany and plants. I mean, you can't read John Muir or any of the other great kind of amateur naturalists of the 19th century without reading them, name-checking every plant species they can, only in this dove, they are artificial flowers. Do you think he was aware of or interested in either botany or the way in which artists had engaged with it in the decades before him? 
Well, you know, there is some kind of scientific component to Dove's work. I mean, being a naturalist and spending a great deal of time, you know, outdoors, he was, you know, very interested in the way in which, you know, nature was made up of various different colors or components of light. So his analysis of nature extended that far. When you read his diaries, it's interesting, too, because they're rather conceptual in format in that he will begin by recording the temperature, the barometric pressure. He'll note the different phases of the moon. And all of that will extend, you know, some of the reading that he will be doing on weather formations and patterns and whatever. I don't know specifically, though, that he was reading 19th century texts. So there are lots of dove paintings that feature flower-like forms or, or leaves and, and a zillion that feature the branches of trees. But one of these 24 primarily not painted works, if you will, that references flowers and botany in just the most extraordinary way is a work called Grandmother from 1925. What is it built from and what do you think Dove is saying with it? Well, again, it's made up of a needlepoint piece. Like literally needlepoint. <laughs> literally needlepoint, yes. Where where he acquired this piece of needlepoint, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, you know, it, it certainly didn't come from Helen Tor's hand. You know, Tor was a seamstress. In fact, one of these collages is actually an homage to her role as a seamstress. But it, again, it, it combines a number of you know, found objects, pressed flowers, leaves, ferns, a passage from the Bible, along with this needlepoint. Appreciating that I'm inclined to find Emerson in all things, <laughs> this strikes me as, I mean, and, and I think Dove engages with Emerson quite, quite, quite a bit across the oeuvre, at least before the 19, you know, at least before his last phase. But this strikes me as a particularly transcendentalism addressing piece. Flowers, nature, the Bible, one on top of the other, one one pointing to the other, all binding together the idea that that an individual experience of God can be found in nature, and nature can be, you know, and, and that God and nature reflect each other as they they do in the literal construction of this piece. Right. Well, I I think that Dove, you know, certainly digested those nineteenth century metaphysical preoccupations. He would describe them, however, in different terms. I mean, as, as a modernist, um, he's, he's thinking, you know, about stretching, you know, the known languages or horizons of art. And there is a distinct metaphysical component, however, that I think runs through almost every work that he produces. You know, he did, he did hope that his, you know, his work would be read for his possibility to induce transcendent experience. There has been a whole lot written about Kandinsky and, and sound. And one of the things that I think thunders forth from this book, from this cat res, is just how many ways Dove finds of addressing sound across so long a period of time. What about sound got Dove interested in it? And why did he think about beginning to, air quotes, translate sound into paintings? Well, you know, Dove does read concerning the spiritual and art by, by Kandinsky. Uh, Dove, we also know, 
paints as of the early 1920s to music. He acquires a phonograph in the early 1920s and later on, later on in the decade, a radio. His diaries are filled with mention of the various composers that he was drawn to, like Irving Berlin, primarily jazz musicians, Berlin and Gershwin, although we know that he also listens to um, Stravinsky and other classical modernist composers. There's very vivid descriptions of, of those records in the diaries. And then I think he's also, you know, attracted to the various sounds of nature. I mean, if you look at a painting from 1929, like Foghorns, you know, there is a piece, you know, that is deeply preoccupied with sound and its abstract reverberations across a landscape. I'm glad you brought up Foghorns. It is one of the most, I've just kind of spectacular from out of the clear blue nowhere paintings in the oeuvre it's one of the it's one of several sound paintings to which you 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 devoted a whole kind of monument page what do we know or what do you think about how dove chose to represent the sound the horns make we'll have an image of the painting on manpodcast.com but it's the painting does look like foghorns kind of ought to look i think (laughs) Yeah, it does. These vibrating sounds as they're hovering over a body of water and piercing through cloud formations, low-lying cloud formations. You know, again, I think that it's just an extension of him looking at you know every transient, ephemeral, fugitive element in nature and substantiating those properties through abstract compositions. You mentioned composers a moment ago, composers like Irving Berlin and George Gershwin. There are paintings that Dove made in which the names of those composers are used, if that's the right phrase. Is is that Dove assigning and linking specific paintings to specific composers, or is that kind of emerged in the decades since? No, those were titles that, that Dove gave to, to paintings like Gershwin's I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise, Rhapsody in Blue, Rhapsody in Blue Number 2. All of those titles we know that Dove gave to these pieces. Sometimes there are, there, there are variations that you'll find in the checklist that Stieglitz printed for the exhibitions that they appear in. We have attempted to be as faithful to the titles that appear in diaries as possible. And we will note variations to titles where we have where we have found them. That's what got me wondering. I mean, because that's one of the really helpful features of the book is that, you know, in, in, in books about 19th century American art, virtually all of the titles have been assessed by the field and the field has moved on from the titles under which painters may have exhibited those paintings, which has resulted in a lot of loss of meaning and reference. And here in this book, it's it's kind of an extra layer of history that's presented with the paintings that I think really helps a lot. While we're in 1929, one of Dove's absolute masterpieces is a, is a painting called Red Tree and Sun. It is in the collection of Fisk University and Crystal Bridges in um, in Arkansas. We'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com, but it seems to me likely to be one of the pictures Dove painted that would have, could have most informed abstract expressionists, specifically Newman and Clifford Still. Did you find yourself in putting this project together, especially the paintings you hadn't worked on before, kind of maybe from just after this point forward, 
thinking about ways in which Dove might have been useful to Abexers? You know, it was something that I thought about a great deal because as I embarked on my research, you know, I was very interested in the reception to Dove's work after his death in 1946. And, you know, 1946 is also a major year in that it was the, it was the year that the term abstract expressionism was floated by Robert Coates, who was the art critic for The New Yorker. It wasn't a term or a name that stuck until the late 1950s, early 1960s. But still, I was really interested in how many of those figures associated with that term would have looked at Dove's work. Would they have gone to Alfred Stieglitz's American Place Gallery and seen Dove's annual exhibitions? And you know, occasionally you will find references to, you know, to Dove made by some of these figures. But it was fascinating to me that, you know, Alfred Barr, the former director of the Museum of Modern Art, who never devoted a show to Dove's work in the early 1950s, you know, has this revelation as he's writing about abstract expressionist work or the New York School, that there are, yes, there are ties and that Dove was this phenomenal precursor to the mid-century. So as we as we kind of move into maybe the last 15 or, or 20 years of, of Dove's career, is he doing new things and having new interests as much as he had in the in the first half of his career, or is he more refining and building upon? I think both. I mean, I think that he is, you know, simultaneously mining the early abstract implications of his work through various canvases like Silver Sun of uh, 1929, as well as Sunrise, Northport Harbor, you know, of the same year, alongside of producing work that still has, you know, figurative elements in it, you know, very distinct references to the sun and the moon in particular. But as you inch into the decade of the 30s, these dual strains will remain evident in his work. There will be, again, these occasional references to known entities like a brickyard or a barge. Lots of barges, lots of tugboats. Yes, or a coal carrier. But then you'll get You'll land upon a painting like Sandbarge of 1930, which is, you know, thoroughly abstract. And by the end of the decade of the 30s, those abstract elements will completely win out in Dove's work. And as of 1940, he is producing paintings that are not based on observation of nature. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the way he kind of goes back and forth, if you will, between the abstract and not. I mean, there's a really weird painting called Seagull from 1933, in which the seagull could not be more representational. But everything else in the painting is completely abstract. And it seems that there's this period where he's kind of willing to go back and forth. And then by the time we get into the 1940s, he's fully committed to non-representation. Um, what do we know or what do you think about the extent that was a, a push-me-pull-you within his own his own mind? Well, I think a number of pressures are being brought to bear, especially in 1933 when we look at a painting like Seagull. 
You know, again, regionalism has asserted itself as a movement by this point in time, and not only has it asserted itself, but by the mid-1930s, it will become the ascendant movement in the United States. And Dove is very consciously thinking about the ascendancy of an artist like Thomas Hart Benton, who was going to be on the cover of Life magazine in 1934, Time magazine rather, in 1934, you know, a first for an American artist. So I think that he's pondering this whole phenomenon of regionalism and, you know, wondering if, you know, there are strains in his work that could be interpreted as regionalist or if he should even be competing with that particular movement. But by 1935, he's thoroughly resolved about his position on regionalist painting. We also find the same in O'Keeffe during this time. You know, when she leaves New York in 1929 to go to New Mexico, she for the most part does become a regionalist painter. You know, she paints skulls and maces and, you know, all kinds of subjects that can be linked to aspects of regionalist painting. Of course, in a way, American painting has always been regionalist, um, at least in the 19th century. I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but, you know, there was no such thing as the Hudson River School. And to the extent that that was a group of painters in a building at one point, they were at least as interested in the White Mountains as they were in anything near the Hudson. And, you know, what's more regional than the White Mountains, right? Or, or the Catskills, for that matter. All of which is stuff that Dove probably had the opportunity to notice and, and think about. You know, it's it's also interesting to me that in these same years, these you know, the kind of last decade plus of his career, as he's doing this push-me-pull-you between abstraction and representation, as he's interested in regionalism and his relationship to it or not, He's fascinated by by the sun and the moon, which you mentioned in passing a moment ago and which I didn't dwell on when maybe I should have. At, at the risk of asking a kind of cosmic question, what about the sun and the moon interested him? And was some of his interest in them that he could be so free in how he represented them? If you look at the series like the Sunrise series of 1936, three paintings, well, there's a fourth that appears a little later on. This is a magisterial series of paintings, and it, in some ways it's Dove's hymn to nature. We can tie it to aspects of his biography of Dove getting up very early every morning to watch the sunrise, to capture the sunrise and paint. He was deeply, deeply drawn to, you know, the metaphysical implications of a painting, a fleeting orb like the sun, and then for these transcendent associations, you know, to be brought to this body of work. But there's also another layer to it, too. I mean, these are embodied abstractions, and there is an obvious phallic, you know, component to these pieces. There is, including in, in Sunrise One, which also, I, I can't imagine that Dove was looking at Munch, but there's kind of a Munchian reference, too, in terms of sunrise and reflection and the body. So he's bridging, I think, both the, the metaphysical and the physical in these pieces. So I want to close with, with two kind of big picture questions. One, I, I think, totally fair and one, I think, totally unfair. <laughs> the fair question is, this book is an extraordinary resource. Catalog resumes quite often make new investigations and new exhibitions and new research possible. What are some of the projects you hope come out of this one? 
Well, I hope that there would be a deep reassessment of the work of Arthur Dove. You know, there has not been a retrospective exhibition of Dove's work since the late 90s, the last one that I worked on. And I am seeing Dove sort of drop off the radar. And I, I hope that this book, you know, will resituate him on the Olympian heights of, of art history. I think that that's where he deserves to be placed. You know, one of the ways this this book worked on me is situated Dove in the middle. You know, I, I, I understood and saw things about his relationship to the 19th century I hadn't thought enough about. And then as probably one or two of my questions have indicated, I've thought about him in terms of the ensuing generation, uh, generations really, you know, precisionism through Abex more, more than I had before. My unfair question is at the end of this project, did you end up with a particular favorite Dove or two? You know, I guess my favorites are revealed in terms of the full page illustrations <laughs> and the monuments that I have isolated. Yeah, I figured that was that was one of the genesis, <laughs> genesis, genesis, whatever the word is of that, of, 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 of how those, those came to be. Deborah Bricker-Balkin, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.